it's good to see you all again and um it's just is it not just wonderful the weather yes people know what to wear how to prepare <laughs> for it and uh, it never at least in california never stops amaze us just anything can always happen. unpredictable and uh, not only that every time it rains in california it's almost as if it's the first time yeah always everybody yeah. gets crazy they drive crazy they take the dumb decision yes so dumb, dumb. this is a shout out to everyone who is on the road right now get off the road get in the house If go somewhere can, park that car yeah. please be safe and uh, there are many people who love you <laughs> just yes. get home uh, safely in your own words in conversation with uh, dr godwin or chaos we all know it's our bi-weekly program where we invite our honored guests to share their own thoughts their own experiences so just give us an insight and by insight we say when you look in the mirror what do you see what looks back at you and not only that then we challenge you when you look out of the window what do you see because as you look out of the window we all see different things i may see a gentleman walking and you may just see a vagabond walking i may see a man walking and you may see a man that needs to fix his shoes So we all see different things and that is the beauty of it it's a perspective molded by your own experiences through life. So today we have my featured guest today is Miss Lucy Atford who will not be on camera but uh, a major 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 she described herself to me when we were chatting briefly is that uh, She's a true Angelino. Apart from a business acumen, a community work, and every other thing, and uh, I will uh, hand off the phone over to Lucy to tell us a little bit about herself, her story, and let's have this conversation. So my name is Lucy Hartford. I'm a born and raised Angelino. I was. You know, grew up in Pasadena, California. I went east to high school and college and then came home to finish college at the University of Southern California. And this is my home and has been and always will be. Thank you, Lucy. So uh, specifically now, why, what does it mean to be a Trangelino? What's your own description? And uh, through the course of, the last decade or two what have you noticed in and being a, an angelino what has changed you know the being raised in california especially los angeles you you understand that this is a multicultural city and there's different you know sections of city that you know different communities and you just have to you you grow up knowing that everybody is different here and you kind of have to be open minded from being at the beach to being in the mountains to being you know downtown And there's all sorts of things, different things to do and experience and see and meet and kind of walk the streets of the city. It's, 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 it's kind of a great place. You, you use the key phrase because uh, you, in, a, in this show, we, we try to maintain the humanity. As we say, we always like to keep the human flavor, the human touch. And you use a key phrase about being multicultural. What to you is multicultural? How do you describe multicultural? Just different, different, you know, every family is raised in a different religion, a different culture. They, they live differently. Not everyone lives the same. You know, their homes aren't set up the same. Some people live with three or four generations in a home. Some people don't. It's just everyone is very different. They've grown, they're, they're, Let me say, their history is from somewhere else. Everybody's a transplant. Absolutely. But then you, 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 once you plant yourself here, you just understand this. I mean, 
you know, when you talk about growing up in Los Angeles, you know, everybody around here is like, oh, I grew up on Mexican food. Well, of course we did. That was the standard. Most kids are like, huh? Like, you know, my favorite thing about the city is I love tacos. I love looking at tacos from going and getting them from like street vendors to, you know, down in the back alley in downtown Los Angeles. I mean, this just everywhere's different. And it has a different, you know, lesson to teach us and an experience. Yeah. As part of the, as part of the introduction and just a bit of your background, you've been described as a wonderful businesswoman and who also sits on multiple boards. Can you please uh, just share a bit about that, the business side and also sitting on the boards and what you're passionate about and why you decide to engage in all these boards that you work on? So I have been involved with fundraising for Children's Hospital Los Angeles probably about the last 15, 20 years. And it's just, it's, Children's Hospital is a, is a core part of this community and taking care of children of all, of all ethnicities, financial backgrounds, everything. It's, it's, it's here to help children. And so I've always been involved with that. And then that's kind of rolled into helping support the Boys and Girls Club of Pasadena and help fundraising there. And, you know, during COVID, a lot of things changed for a lot of these kids. And we really wanted to make sure to keep the doors open and the money coming in and having computers and places to play and study. And, you know, that's part of, you know, supporting our community and giving them a foundation. Yolanda, you had your hand up. Yes, I think I probably know Lucy Hartford. She said she grew up in Pasadena and she mentioned... When did you leave Pasadena? I moved out of Pasadena in 1974. But when I came back to Los Angeles and I was involved with the Junior League, I made a very close group of friends who all still live in Pasadena. So I'm there a great deal of the time. So did you go to PHS Blair Muir? I did not. Oh, okay. I went, I went away to school. Okay. Okay. I grew up in Pasadena, Altadena. And I left in 1974. Well, actually, in 74, 75. And I go to the children's, the uh, children's sale. I can't remember what it's called, but every year in October, it's usually around October 20th, 21st, 22nd, at some vacant building in Pasadena, the Children's Hospital LA has a gigantic three-day sale. Are you a part yeah, of that? Correct. You're, okay. No, that's so, so Children's Hospital Los Angeles has 26 associates and affiliates organizations. And each of those individual organizations fundraises money from different neighborhoods yes. and communities around Los Angeles. Okay. Okay. And that one is so, huge. It lasts all weekend. Yeah. Are they doing it this, this month? As far, I don't know. I've not seen an invitation from one. Okay. But that there's, is, I mean, most of most of our most of our events are are up and running. Oh, okay. So maybe they are going to do it in Pasadena this year. It's huge. They probably will. It's huge. It's so big. People line up, and the line is open Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They start lining up at seven o'clock. The doors don't open until nine, and it's huge. It, it's yeah, a great it's organization, huge. and it's a great it's a great foundation for the city. It really uh, is. Uh, it, it's really interesting just listening to this conversation between uh, Miss Colette and uh, our featured guest today, Miss Hartford. I liked what uh, Miss Hartford said when she said during the pandemic. You know, <laughs> that appears to be a reference point in our new reality. During the pandemic, guess what? Life still continues. A lot of people still needed help. People were still Uh, sick from other things and uh, decisions to take care or receive care was, of course, delayed for many people. So uh, I'm just curious to know about your take on uh, what, you know, the experiences of people, particularly children and those that needed medical care during this pandemic. <clears throat> hey, Lucy. You know, that that was, I mean, you know, the, most of the city and most, most hospitals, and I know my brother, I have a brother who's a doctor, 
that, you know, they abided by the, you know, the CDC and they did everything they could to get, you know, emergency, you know, much needed healthcare services to everybody and the non-essentials, like certain surgeries just weren't done. But, you know, most doctors I know were in, you know, never, never stopped working. So it was, you know, at this point, we all had to survive. That was the deal. And we had to keep the doors open. But what about the fact now that, um, when, oh, instead of telling that, let me tell you what happened to me today. <clears throat> I got, uh, actually on Sunday, I got an urgent phone call from uh, <clears throat> from somebody I know about a, Apparently, there is a game today at the SoFi Stadium in Englewood. Mm-hmm. And this family of four already had the tickets. They're essentially celebrating their dad's 67th birthday belatedly. So they know he's a big fan and they wanted to watch the game. And they called me to ask, where can they get the vaccine? They finally asked. <laughs> they finally asked today because they needed the vaccine <laughs> or proof of COVID or something, and there was nowhere they could get it on Sunday. And if they could even get their first shot of vaccine, and that was enough for them to to finally go and get the, you know, as a reason, the rationale, and of course, no judgment, no comment. It's a call for facilitation. And I said, okay, I think I have a few hookups. <laughs> and uh, I will send a note uh, so that you can get it, uh, get your shots uh, today. I don't know if they've received it. I'm not directly involved in the care. But I just thought it was uh, interesting what will move people. And now... Using that as my preamble, Lucy, you are a businesswoman. Yeah. Tell us more about the business climb and, uh, you know, working in this city, a, a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, and multicultural community, as you described it. And not only do you describe it that way, as a true Angelino, it's beyond uh, a melting pot because it's actually a potpourri because we still have distinct flavors. We still have a few people that we still go to the Ethiopian restaurant, some that we go to the Chinese, I mean, the Chinese restaurant, the Korean restaurant, those that we go to just all the different diverse groups, but yet we still all have to do business together try to integrate, and we're coming out from a very charged political climb. But you as a businesswoman still have to work in this environment. I'm interested to know your take about this. (laughs) So my my business, I work in commercial and industrial real estate, and I work in the warehousing business. And I currently, I'm working in a neighborhood that my, most of my clients are Hispanic and speak basically Spanish. And, you know, everyone, the way I see it, everyone's just trying to go to work and make a living and kind of, you know, just make it work and move forward. You know, it's, it's, it's just one step, one foot in front of the other each and every day. Yeah. You have an interesting business in real estate. I've read a lot of stories. I've probably witnessed one or two. And uh, we still know about, of course, the value of your zip code and, you know, the taxes you pay and the schools and facilities around you based on your zip code. But I'm also Mm -hmm. also aware, I'm not oblivious of the redlining of some particular area. And still, a lot of minority groups still feel discriminated. Do you have any personal experience just interacting with people? For example, now you, I like the word, you say you work in a predominantly Hispanic community right now. How easy is it for other groups, for example, the Asians to come to that community? 
and what is your feel what is your uh, how do you interpret the body language you see so the community where that i'm working right now surrounds a neighborhood called linwood and it is a very strong hispanic community i mean their main shopping center is designed based on um a mexican plaza so you know i don't it's hard it's the 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 business culture there is based on the people who live there and the businesses. And a lot of the businesses are people who sell in the swap meet at Plaza Mexico and in Linwood. So it's very much based on the community around them. Like most, I mean, I, I have a client who are like, I grew up here. I grew up in Linwood and Paramount. I went to high school down the street. This is where my business is. And a lot of people stay there because they feel that it's a safe place to work and live and they like the business community and the community and the city is very opening and business friendly. And that's kind of how it's evolved, but it's been, it's predominantly, it's very much predominantly Hispanic community. So what, so how will you help a non-Hispanic client to that is interested in living in Linwood? What will you tell them as a Trangelino? <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, how do I explain it? It's, yeah, because of the location. So it's basically at the intersection of the 105 and the 710 freeway. Mm-hmm. You know, driving in Los Angeles and working in Los Angeles, a lot of what you do is based on where you live and where you drive to and how much time you spend in the car. In the commercial real estate world, your warehouses are in locations that are attached to the trucking areas. So warehousing is always off of a major intersection of a freeway within a couple blocks because the trucks can get in and out. So that's actually how the business is driven on who works and who works there. It's where the business, you know, the business comes in. Example, like, um, example I can use, uh, you know, like any of the warehouses that bring in all the stuff that's sitting out on those big shipments off the port, they're all along those freeways because they truck them in and drop them off. And then from there, they take the stuff off to other people. So, in Paramount, a lot of people are either manufacturing cabinets, they're making furniture, there's a dairy out there. Actually, Paramount used to be Dairyland, and that's how it was kind of originally uh, built and developed. Um, a lot of food warehousing. It's just, it's all kind of a little bit of everything. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Um <clears throat> I tried to be a true Angelino. I was not born here. I'm a transplant, and uh, this is what I call home. But uh-huh. I'm sure you and uh, Miss Colette probably have definitely more wealth of experience because I was shaking when you said, both of you said you left Pasadena, Altadena, like 74, 73. Well, I was in diapers then, but... <laughs> <laughs> but you were already moving to school, deciding on your path through life. But uh, in real estate, I just want to follow up with my last question. We still have the zoning system, and uh, yeah, I think it's really uh, it's really challenging to discuss this without uh, raising the temperature because in zoning system also beyond. You know, industrial layout, urban layout, residential re- layout. We also know that there is zoning that sort of subliminally talks about uh, racial ethnic areas. Like the area you walk right now is predominantly a particular group. <clears throat> let Let us speak. My popular neighborhood. I always go back to Crenshaw Lamar Park. The history of that zone, that general area antecedent historically was predominantly black, but you know, with the population dynamics, it has changed and it is changing. And it has also brought up the issue of gentrification. So you are the ones selling it right now. So in your job as a realtor, as in your job as in the real estate business, in the job of having to interact and deal with different people, do you think about, uh, tell me about your definition, what you see in the changes in the evolution, the culture and the social component of your work, or can it just be strictly business? 
So you brought up zoning and the city is zoned in certain ways. And that was the zoning was established by the city whenever the cities were built. So there's a lot of zoning codes that exist that are 100 years old, 200 years old. They are what they are. And then they change the zoning to adapt to the neighborhood's demand or need for financial support or development or whatever. So if you bring in more business, you bring in more income, that income goes and supports the community, uh, such as you know infrastructure and roads and all the different things, police departments and all that. So zoning is something that has been established well before anything has ever happened. Um, when you talk actually about Crenshaw, Crenshaw has become, because of the metro, has be is being gentrified because now the you know the count the city of Los Angeles wants everyone to live in apartments and get on the metro and go to work and not drive their car, and that's kind of what all of that is pushing towards. And they're called development zones. There's there's different development zones for it. So the big push right now is to develop the metro out and build, you know, basically live workspaces so that people aren't in their cars anymore. And with that, you get a better effect on the environment with not so many people driving. But we are trying, trying, we are trying to change a community that has driven cars for over 100 years. We live in a very car-centric community. So you can't just change it overnight. It takes, it's going to take 50 or 60 years. Yeah, I, I, I actually, I, I agree with you on that in a, <clears throat> in a, in a system. <clears throat> In a city that is essentially built around your own cars and not public transport, it's pretty uh, difficult. I do a lot of work in a, <clears throat> on, on equity and diversity. And uh, I always use the same examples because when you tell somebody to buy good food, to go to the grocery stores and they are... And they need to go on a public transport, you know, already. That is that makes their choice quite uh, difficult. And in some particular areas, since, you know, Crenshaw, we just stick to Western Avenue. When I teach my class, I love to tell my students to travel on Western Avenue, to start from South Bay and just drive on, drive on South uh, North back to downtown L.A., and come back and tell me what they see. That is just, that is actually a midterm exam. And that's all. And they will tell you about the smoke shops for the South, the motels somewhere in the middle, all the way until they start telling you about Koreatown and everything in between. And not only that, they will also tell you about old layouts and new layouts and how the roads are is wider in the South Bay area than things up as you move towards Gardena, Hawthorne, then just almost becomes a trickle as you cross exposition. Then they also will write about the signs they see. Okay, that is my favorite sign. I think it is still there. It's just uh, the north side of the railroad on exposition and western, facing the west side, there's a barber shop that says uh, <laughs> Baba Shop. Then it also has a sign, Hispanics welcome. <laughs> it cracks me up every time. Why did the person think there was a need to include that sign? Hispanics also welcome. And on equity, on equality, on the resources available, in some places, it's only, I'm not beating McDonald's, but some places it's only McDonald's you will find. And in some places, that's where you probably on that same street, you will meet the likes of Trader Joe for the South with a better variety and options of food. While some places it's only be the taco truck. So as, uh, as somebody in the real estate business, how do you factor equity in your downtime? Do you really think of equity? Do you really think of community development? Is it something in your trade and in your advocacy as you also advise the government? Is it something you, your, 
profession, your organization bring to the fore? Is it something you put into consideration? So our our business is based on demand and what the what the neighborhood and the community demands or what their their need is. So it's it's hard to bring that into the conversation because we work in we work in a, we work in the neighborhood we work where our locations are are industrial. And they're all they've been industrial for a hundred years. And I when it's interesting when people talk about equity and I think people need to go have, take an urban regional planning class about how this city was built and what was, was built around. And the city was built on a grid system. And you mentioned Exposition Boulevard. Well, that was one of our biggest transportation grids. They moved people, they moved cattle, they moved, I mean, that's just how the city was laid out. And, you know, that's, that's to me is that's, I think that's where the first conversation start on how people view the city is look how the city was laid out originally. Because it was right, you know, people came here to live because of the weather and the opportunity. And I think, you know, that's kind of my perspective on all of this. You know, equity is something I can't bring into my business because it's not, it's not applicable because of what we do and what our our clients do. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Um, I'm following you. Trucking world. Mm -hmm. We truck. We truck. Our clients rent warehouses to truck products in and out of the city or manufacture and the manufacturing is either is usually tools and parts in aerospace so it kind of it's all based on demand it's just that's just how it is yeah uh i i understand what you what you just said because uh, you are essentially a service provider and uh you yes, mediate, absolutely. Yeah, yes and as a service provider okay you 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 match the demand with the opportunities and you help people to achieve whatever their objectives are and uh, in working in the industrial layout now that is another unique uh, unique uh, micro micro community i would say in in los angeles because um when we talk about uh, the things that happened during the COVID, we also know about the informal economy of the informal sector and all these uh, workers, especially the Hispanics, with improper documentations who have to work, but they could not take time off work. You know, you tell people to stay at home, but the day they don't work, they don't get paid. And then, uh, No, that is true. And there are, and what people also don't understand is where and how we get our food and how our food is processed and where it's distributed from. And if you go to downtown Los Angeles and you go to Vernon and Commerce, you will see food, produce, pork. I mean, you'll see everything. You know, you'll see metal working. I mean, it's just, it's, it's kind of how the city develops. And, you know, I, there were a lot of people who worked through, you know, worked in all the food warehouses and produce centers that worked all the way through COVID because they had to get food out the door onto our table, which most people don't realize. Yeah, because uh, so if you have the opportunity, I'm just I'm just playing with it, with the thoughts now to take maybe my fourth grade uh, my fourth grade daughter with her class to uh, the city of Vernon, Commerce, or anywhere <laughs> in LA. What will you tell my kids, the fourth grader? You know nobody's smarter than a fourth grader or fifth grader. What 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 will you well, show them? Well I'll you know you it, well it's interesting because if you take someone to Vernon on a Sunday afternoon at five o'clock, you're gonna see trucks, eighteen wheeler trucks parked all the way down the road and the men are standing outside getting ready to start their morning at 3 a.m to load on food to get shipped out to our you know to our grocery our grocery grocery stores you know to the processing plants bringing in the vegetables taking them out and then you go there you know if you go there at 10 o'clock on a monday morning you can't drive around because the trucks are moving so fast and they're moving everything that we consume just, you know, food-wise and, you know, stuff in our home, furniture. I mean, there's a guy, there's a huge guy down there that makes noodles, you know, and it's just, it's, you, it, it shows you how the commerce exists and transacts in the city of Los Angeles. 
And if you look at a, if you look at an overview of the city, you'll also know that, notice that there are train tracks that roll into Varnon and Commerce that come from the port. Because not everything can get on a truck sometimes. So it's it's interesting. It shows you how everything moves in our world so that we can live, you know, live in our homes and go to a grocery store. You know, Los, the Port of Los Angeles and the Port of Long Beach are one of the biggest ports in the world. You know, how do you, where, how do you think our cars arrived here? How do you, I mean, this is how everything, this is how we exist. That's why it's called intermodal. Yes, uh, uh, I'm a global health practitioner and uh, and uh, we it's a it's a specialty that evolved from initially called travel medicine where we just think of what we need to travel from point a to point b usually vaccines typically then it evolved to become international health when we actually travel and uh, we just essentially want to save or help some other people. So it's like, it's called missions. We call it essentially missionaries who go on missions. And what mm-hmm. I think most times is, okay, north, south, from the northern hemisphere, maybe the U.S. going to the southern hemisphere, somewhere South America, you know, to help indigenous communities and so on and so forth. Then it now further moved on to be called the... Uh, to evolve, to be more encompassing. And now it is called uh, global health. In global health, we talk about the transnational nature of uh, diseases. We talk about health systems development. We talk about the intersect between the culture and nature of a place, the politics of that particular place or country, how their own health system developed and always as a reference point that we compare for example with our home country the the u.s but essentially we are trying to say there are different flavors but if one particular side is weak you have to be aware enough that it may eventually meet you and a good example is this uh, once in a hundred years pandemic that we face right now we all know it started from china Regardless of how it began, maybe a lab accident, maybe naturally, that is not the issue, but it definitely has disrupted our lives as we used to know it. It's already almost two years down now, and we are yet to fully recover. But when you are describing taking my nine-year-old fourth graders on a, on a trip to the city of Vernon and Commerce. I like the example you gave about, you know, our groceries, our cars, and just commerce and uh, the value. So how do you think, now that we're talking about, you know, let's live in peace, understanding the value of the person, how do you think the city of Commerce, Vernon, Linwood, and particularly you, as a, you know, very educated, very intelligent, and a successful uh, businesswoman, how do you think we can build that into harmony to actually let people know the value of that piece of meat we have in our groceries or somewhere in? Uh, on Western Avenue, my pop, my popular boulevard that I use for my class. So, so you're asking me is how do we, are you saying basically is how do we educate people to get along? Yes, especially our younger children to value the other person. That, see, I, that is something, I think those values come from the family, the family culture they're raised in, that the mother and father make that important to them, that they understand the value. That's where my values came from, were from my mother and my father. You know, you can't, and I mean, a parent has the most effect on a child. You know, it, the community, if it supports the child, yes. But usually the child, if the child, then that means that the, if the child needs the community support, that means the child is looking for support and they don't get it at home. And I think everything stems from the home and the, you know, and the parents. And, you know, open, I mean, a lot of people also need to open their eyes and look around and see. And understand and, you know, have respect for the, have respect for the trucker who is out there. It's 4 a.m. in the morning 
moving chicken and, you know, hamburger meat to get into our market so that we can have food on this plate at night. You know, and that has to be, you know, someone has to teach that to teach those values to the child. Yeah, in, 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 in teaching the value system, you 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 must agree with me that uh, not every child have uh, the same opportunity of having a stable home where there is a Agreed. mother and a and a child. And I remember Gabriel Garcia Marquez, one of his books that I was reading, where he wrote a line. I love that line when he said, "Now." He must get out of school to get his education. And by that, he was referring to the real education, which is now the intersect. the real world. Yes, the intersect between the theory and practical. And in these days, you know, it really takes a village. It takes a community to, to, bring, to bring up a child. And when we're talking about well, that's, that's that's why I'm a big proponent of the Boys and Girls Club is that when a child doesn't have the support they need, they have a Boys and Girls Club to go to to get that support. And that's some. I mean, during COVID, there were a lot of families who were working in, you know, working in Vernon and Commerce, and their local Boys and Girls Club is where their children went to school because they could get online on a computer there, and they were somewhere where they were safe and they had meals. That was the big, you know, when the school system couldn't do it, Boys and Girls Club in Los Angeles did it. They support, they kept their doors open to support the kids in the community while mom and dad went to work. Yeah, the the uh, uh, the Boys and Girls Club, I have very, very high regards for, for the Boys and Girls Club because uh, I've heard only, only positive things. And I know a few people who have graduated from the program you know, benefited from your program. Who are adults, grown folks now, and they really still swear by the opportunity they've uh, they've given. So, uh, so how do we really increase the reach of the Boys and Girls Club and some of these other social clubs and charitable clubs? You know, I it, it's I, I wish I knew. I mean, you you hope that they learn about it through their school, through public school system. And, you know, then the public school system, you know, gives, you know, shows them this is where you can go. This is where you can go and study and play a sport, you know, do something after school instead of going and doing something wrong. So, I mean, there's a gentleman here in my neighborhood who rented out an old sorority house. And he has made it the next step for the kids from places like Boys and Girls Club, where if the kid gets into UCLA, they can apply to live in this old sorority house and have a place to be safe and to have internet access and to have a hot meal while they go to UCLA. And that's like the next, I think that was a fantastic idea. Like he took it to the next level. Yeah. It's important it through education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's very easy for us to take a lot of things for granted like what this uh, COVID has showed us. You know, where, where, where I teach in the university, I honestly, I've been around the world, but I always assume that every college student, either on campus or at home, have access to internet. I was wrong. No, they don't. Yes, I didn't know that. That was a, that was a, an awakening for me because when we send the students home, remember that we sent them home in March last year and Starbucks and the other places where they will have gone for internet was also closed. The library. Yes, libraries were also closed. And, that, and I just thought, don't you have internet at home? No, they really didn't have internet at home. A few that, of course, everybody has a phone, but not all of them could actually use the phone for the hotspot to power their computer properly. And above all, they have siblings. So multi-generational household, they have grandparents, they have older people there. 
who needed the same internet and everybody has to maybe huddle around the dining table and we are expecting them to participate in college activity and have their cameras on and it's not conducive. These were things I really never thought of. And with the Boys and Girls Club, just as you said, providing at least a conducive environment where they can access a basic resource, something that in the 21st century we take for granted, the internet, you know, mentoring is uh, it's really of note, uh, noteworthy. And I must just mention that, just listening to you highlighting it in your, in your last point. Well, I mean, they also provided food. You know, they were getting two meals a day that most kids weren't, you know, weren't, weren't getting because they weren't in school. I mean, it, you know, that's, I mean, that's where kind of the inequities of, of our community lie. And the thing that makes me crazy is that if we, the found, you know, a child's foundation is their education. You give them an education, they can go do anything with it because it gives them a sense of accomplishment and that pushes them forward. Yeah, it's 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 just uh, it's just amazing how this became a, the great uh, equalizer for us and an awakening, and everybody just speaks different thing from the from this pandemic because there are people out oh, there yeah. that uh, you will never think twice of what they are going through. You will not. It won't ever even cross your mind that uh, they face such a situation. And for the issue of food, you know, when you close down the school, that was a big one also in South LA. Children actually went to school to study, of course, to learn something, but actually for the meals. And that may be the only proper meal they will have or two meals they will have at, uh, during the day. So when we shut down the schools, just think of the hundreds of students, if not thousands of students in the various school districts who probably were hungry. And what was the most amazing thing is, is that, you know, if, and I don't think anybody realized this where I live, because I live near UCLA, there was a food bank out in the parking lot at Veteran and Wilshire that was giving away food. A lot of times there no one ever showed up because no one knew about it. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, there was there was there was there was food all over the city being given away, and a lot of times people didn't know about it or understood it because they didn't have the education to figure it out. So it, it you know it circles back yeah. to that. So they didn't have the education, they didn't have the knowledge, they didn't have the awareness, but they were, of course they were hungry. How about let us flip it the other way? If the food is actually moved, and I'm speaking from the side of a program manager, to where people already congregate. For example, like during the pandemic, some people still find a way to gather. Why can't the food not be taken to those locations and sites? I'm just asking. Because I remember that uh, in Koreatown, one of the projects there in Koreatown Oh my gosh, people will stand in line at four at four five PM on Friday to receive their week's supply of food at six AM on Saturday. And even the winter months in the cold, you have people standing in line there. So it's kind of strange as so people will stand in line in Koreatown and by UCLA. The food was there and nobody was in line. Where do, where do you think, as a program manager, we got the disconnect? Well, I think that the, the, the disconnect came from the fact that the food was being funded through UCLA and no one was here. The students weren't here. There was, you know, there were not many teachers here. I mean, the university was definitely, I mean, Westwood was a ghost town at the beginning and through most of the pandemic. There was no one here. So no one was, no one was walking around. No one was driving their cars. No one was seeing it. So, and then obviously the only other way you would figure it out is through the internet. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's that concept of getting information and then, you know, and the demand of the supply. Yeah. The, the demands on supply is, uh, and getting the information, which would be the connection between demand and supply is uh, really, really. Exactly. Critical. That is correct. Yes. And, 
and more often than not, that is the, the missing link. And that is where all the groups and charities that we all support in our lives, other than our businesses, also, you know, come to come to play. Because if people don't know, they will not come. Right. And and just as you said, uh, targeting of your audience, knowing who your audience, knowing who your beneficiaries are, also goes a long way. Around uh, UCLA, with the children not being there, and you've already described a, a ghost town. Definitely, uh, not that people don't need food in that place, but very, 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 very few people will probably need, and most of them are probably workers who come in from right. out of that area, collect the food and go back home, but they don't really live in that uh, area. So maybe not praying for that pandemic, but in targeting of our assistance, we may just really probably keep on thinking of getting the food closer to where the people who really need it are. And that we go back to the zip code where they are, because Koreatown was just... It was humbling. I was there for several months. Every Saturday, I'll be there for a medical program to supervise the medical team for the COVID uh, tests and vaccines later when it came up this year. And uh, it never really ceased to amaze me what people were, you know, how people were living, how people were suffering, and the distances some people covered to come. And there are people also who could receive food, but they had no means of transporting it. They could not get on a public transport. So it was, you know, it was just really, uh, really humbling. And the things I've always taken for granted and just seeing it out there in front of me that I cannot take such things for for granted. So now, uh, if you were given the opportunity to to propose a policy for, for Los Angeles now and you are in a committee to, to work with the with the mayor's office. What will be your passion? What will you pick? What what projects, what mission, what what thoughts will you share? Well, my project will always start with, you know, the foundation for children, which is, you know, health and education. And then you teach them and then you help them, you know, like this city grow from the foundation or from the grid that the city was built on. And, you know, you just it's it's getting information and knowledge and helping people take that and the capability to keep moving forward. And I believe that if you if you've got the knowledge and you can learn how to do it, you can get it done. And I'm I'm a big proponent. I've gone through two different careers. I've started from zero at 49 years of age. And you just having the, just figure, just one foot in front of the other, I think is some of the best, you know, it's the best thing you can give a child. And that they can, you know, as long as they keep moving forward, if they stop and they sit and they, they stagnate and they wait for it to be given to them, nothing will change. So it's, you know, you got to move forward. So what, education and health and healthcare and all of those things are what helps move things forward. So, so um, then what will you tell a 49-year-old that feels he or she has tried everything and they're now in the point of despair? How will you, how will you lead them? What, how do I listen to help a child move forward? No, a 49-year-old. How did I move forward? How will you help somebody who is 49 years old, who is, who is suffering despair? Well, I hopefully they, I help them by bringing them somewhere and working with them to move them forward, helping them find the support in their community because there's nowhere else you're going to get it. You can't, you know, if you don't have family, then you turn to your community. I, have, I, I, I mean, that's the one thing that, yeah, That's I have one thing about this, 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 this particular support. question because of um, just thinking of the homelessness in our city. And you just mentioned how, you know, you started from 
a particular level and you've achieved now what you have achieved through your hard work, dedication, of course, luck also and blessings. But there are some people probably have also given up and uh, some of them are just, we drive by them and we just look at them like this and and, uh, we don't, you know, we just that listen that I live so I live near I live near the uh, VA and I live near a rather large homeless encampment and it is you know it's this city has the money and the support to help them the problem is is that in that community some people don't want help and some people mentally can't get it because they just they they can't they're not stable to do that so our homeless population is a very hot button issue and it is not something that you know we've been trying to solve this problem for 20 years and it never seems no one seems to figure it out and you know it's i don't have an answer for that one that i've lived in it i have a gentleman who runs through my neighborhood at four o'clock in the morning screaming obscenities he's been here for years everybody knows him but there's nothing we can do because he's mentally unstable you know, it's and that's I mean, that is that's a that's a really tough issue to even discuss in this town because it is such a hot button issue and it's and it affects everybody. Nobody in the city is not affected by homelessness ever. Yeah. So uh, let me ask Yolanda this question on homelessness and based on what uh, Lucy has just mentioned, Miss Hartford. Does homelessness, does it embarrass you when you see a homeless person? Do you turn your face away? What comes to your mind? The inhumanity, the inhumanity, and I personally, along with many others, don't believe that this is something that the city cannot clean up. The city gets money from the feds, the city gets money from the state, the city gets money from private organizations, and the city cannot clean it up. I think that's a bold-faced lie. I think it's a lie. Not only is it a lie, as long as there is this issue, the city will get money to employ people to work on trying to fix the issue, but they're not really fixing the issue. Mark Ridley Thomas's deputy told me one day after a two-hour conversation that they are waiting for the data. Waiting for what data? You mean to tell me you can't drive down the street and see the data? It's in your face. There isn't one city street in Los Angeles County, Orange County, that you cannot drive down and see homeless people. Back in 19, maybe the 70s, 70s or late 60s, Ted, and I don't remember his last name, he created an encampment on the west side of the Harbor Freeway. He must have had, I don't know, 25, 30, maybe 50 pods. They look like igloos. They removed those. They removed them. Those pods kept people off of the street. But now the disgrace, the inhumanity, someone went to L.A. uh, about a month ago. He sent me a text and he said, it's horrible. He said, Ted Hayes, he said, it looks like a third world country. And it does. And am I embarrassed? I sure am embarrassed. I'm embarrassed for those people who are being treated in such inhumane ways. And yes, a lot of them are mentally ill, but when they take them off the street and they hospitalize them or they take them to jail, they release them and they throw them back out on the street. So you cannot tell me that the city is trying to do anything about homeless issues because they're not. They're keeping everybody else in those jobs L.A. got $2.6 billion from Gavin Newsom, and you can't do anything about the homeless issue? I beg to differ. So do a whole lot of other people. It's wrong. It's inhumane. And you know what? God's going to get them for it. <laughs> yeah, like that. You know, I'm more, more sure. often than not, I agree with you. But this time, I actually, I will lean more in the comments of a Miss Hartford. That there are some people okay. that cannot be helped. And, and those are people, yeah, those are the, some people just because they cannot be helped. And, and, and I refuse to believe that they cannot be helped. 
It's a struggle to help them. And remember, Kaiser and uh, the, the endowment, lots of organizations want us to volunteer to go out and count people. One year, I said I would go out on the streets at night and count people. Then I said, no, I'll be inside and do the counting. But you can't say, really, people, really? Some people, it's easy to say. Some people just can't be helped. That is a very easy cop-out. Absolutely. We already know that. Yes, so you're I'm, just going to leave them there? You just leave them there? The same way no, the I, I, That is actually not what I'm saying. One, as Miss Adford said, you know, unique circumstances. Sure. The cyclical nature of it. But also note this. I don't think throwing money. Throwing money at a problem will solve the problem. Because it you won't. have told us all these millions and billions. You're billions. right. That's right. And Miss right. Adford, is, she's a successful businesswoman. And she will yes. tell you it's not only money. It isn't only money. That's right. That's right. But, yes. But, uh, you know, the programming, the compassion, not turning your face. And we've come to the eye and we've just reached the part that I love most about, <laughs> you know, some of these things we are passionate about. But we will let Miss Adford have the last word and where she, and I will let you wrap up how we can continue this conversation and this recordings and where it's available. Great. Thank you, Dr. Orkin. Lucy. Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm last, I mean, I, I, I don't know what you want my last word to be or what you're asking. I mean, you know, this is, you know, this is our city's, one of our, this is our city's biggest problem. And every, you know, it's, how do we fix it? We haven't fixed it in 30 years. You know, and I live right in the middle of it. And I, you know, no one knows what to do. And it's really sad because the VA administration is here. They have a huge piece of, they have a hospital They've got services, you know, and people don't want to use it, and some do. And they do. They go in for three days, and then they get released. It's awful. You know, it is inhumane. There's no question about it. That's not just, That's not how we are supposed to live, especially in this country, as profitable and prosperous as we are. So I don't know the answer. If I may interject, this is Kenny, the engineer, and you said you live near the VA? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I just watched a YouTube video on the homeless right by the VA and how bad it was right down oh, there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it, I mean, right in the shadows of it. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It, and it is, it's an unsustainable situation, but I, I, I don't know what you do about it because you've got some people that, I, that can't be I, you know, I don't know, I mean. You know, and that property was, that property was given by a family, by a woman, to be there to support the veterans of our country. So yeah, and many of them are, are veterans there out are, there. there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, they're supposed to be, you know, there are, there is, uh, there are buildings for them to live in. I mean, there's everything there. And, you know, no one seems to understand how to do the right thing with it. And it's, it's awful. It's horrible. It is horrible. And how this country with Hollywood and UCLA right down the street, and NASA up the street in Pasadena, JPL and Caltech and all of these wonderful things. And they can't fix this. They can't treat people with some kind of humanity and dignity. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, so Yolanda, we never end our show on that with gloom and doom. We highlight the humanity in whatever we're discussing. And we remember yes. everyone that this is called In Your Own Words. In, in Your Own Words. Yes. So you express yourself, you see the things, but you must end with a smile and food yes. for thoughts yes. so that we can just go back and continue what our passion is. Shout out to the Children's Hospital LA. Yes, great. The Boys yes. and Girls Club also supported by Miss Hartford. And we think uh, those organizations are doing amazing and awesome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it has been a pleasure and thank you for being with us and with Dr. Godwin Orkay. Ms. Hartford, we appreciate you coming with us on this show. And this has been In Your Own Words with Dr. Godwin Orkay. Great show as always, Dr. Orkay. Can't wait till next time. So have a good evening, everyone. Be safe going home. I like to say that. Wear your masks. Get vaccinated. Do what's necessary. We got to get rid of this COVID. And 
have a good evening, everyone. And we'll talk to you tomorrow on Change Matters. Tomorrow is going to be It's Time to Tell the Truth. Tomorrow, 5 p.m. Pacific Time. And in your time zone, you do the math, as Kenny Hendricks says. And we will see you then. Have a good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining us. ITRN Radio. Take care.